Hello and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Sports. My name is Michael Raziel and today I have a very, very cool episode with my new friend Bailey who is the creator of the YouTube page Foolish Baseball. Bailey is a baseball content creator and a noted Braves fan, so we get to talk about that a little bit. But we really dive into his story, obviously, what he did and how he had a video pretty much just rocket him into success and how now it has almost 1 million views on YouTube. And we really understand you know, how he does it, what he does, and how he came up with the idea, which I think is really cool. So very grateful that I had the opportunity to have Bailey on and uh, very excited for you guys to listen to the episode. Today, super special guest. So we have Bailey, uh, the gentleman who created Foolish Baseball, baseball content creator, noted Braves fan. Bailey, thanks for hanging out with me today, man. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks for the invite. No, dude, the pleasure is all mine. You're you're the one that knows all these people and you're all on the internet all the time. I'm just trying to share some stories. This is fun. Um, and I think your story is pretty cool. So I'm really glad that I get the opportunity to chat with you. But the first question I have for everybody that comes on the For the Love of Sports podcast is, why do you love sports so much? I just can't remember a time when I didn't love sports, uh, especially baseball. For me, I, you know, I was born 1995, you know, that's in the middle of the, the Braves dynasty, basically the, the 14 consecutive division streak. Uh, the, uh, they were on TBS, you know, nationally broadcast all over the country. And, and my parents, you know, grew up in Atlanta, big Braves fans. So that was just kind of the household I grew up in. And, um, you know, it was just a special time for sports back where I was from, even in the 96 uh, Atlanta hosted the Olympics. I was there. I've been to an Olympics. I was, you know, a baby. I don't remember it, but it's just, that's, I was just right place, right time to be a sports fan. No, dude, I love it. And yeah, not that many people can say they've been to Olympics. Um, you know, however many go every two or four years, but in the grand scheme of things, that is a super small percent of the population. So I hope you guys got some great videos, great, um, I don't know, did people take videos back then? Hopefully you got some good pictures, you know, on Polaroid or something your parents got. So uh, 96 was a little while ago, but I think it's awesome, man. And yeah, I, so I'm a big Mets fan, so um, I hate you for that. But other yeah. than that, you know, it's good to have rivalries. It's good to, you know, have a little bit of uh, animosity every once in a while. And of course, that Braves pitching staff was just insane. I love going back and watching some of the stuff that the three of those guys did. Glavin obviously came over the Mets for a minute, which was it was cool, but let's be honest. It was like when Pedro was on the Mets. It didn't really do too much for me, if we're being honest. So it's yeah. still fun, and it's still something. So, um, again, reason why I wanted to have you on a little bit, uh, obviously talk about kind of your story and what you've done. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, where did you go to college? What were you planning on doing after you left college? So say right. I went to a small liberal arts school in the Southeast United States. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, that, that liberal arts education is pretty good. And uh, when I was there, I, uh, I studied German, German studies and history. And um, in a weird way, they've both sort of informed uh, the YouTube baseball career. So after I finished college, I graduated in 2017. We'll just get into it. You know, uh, I went to Germany for a year. I lived in Germany between uh, July 2017 and uh, July 2018. And that's actually uh, during that spring is when I first started making the YouTube videos for Foolish Baseball. Um, and I was also working, uh, doing basically volunteer work for a German baseball club at the time. Um, so that, that had kind of gotten the, the ball rolling on me thinking, hey, when I get back to the States, how can I work in baseball? Because, uh, you know, this is just what I feel like I meant to do. And I didn't think it would be YouTube. That was just something I was doing for fun at the time. But um, by the time I got back to the States, uh, it would only be about six or seven months before I posted the Verlander video and, and then I started to really take that aspect of it seriously. Yeah. And that Verlander video is insane. Um, did you have, well, first let's, let's, let's stay, let's stay on topic. I'm sorry. I do that. Sometimes I start to start to ramble, start to go on tangents with what is German baseball like? Like what, what, yeah. what is the, what's the fandom over in Germany for, you know, this sport that's mainly known, you know, now obviously in Asia a lot too, but mostly mm -hmm. in the United States and the, yeah, so in the Latin American countries. 
so Germany is not um, what I would say home to like the highest level European baseball. Um, the best European baseball, in my opinion, is actually in the Netherlands. Uh, so kind of their next door neighbors. Uh, they have it's called uh, the league there is called like honkball, which might just be their word for baseball or something like that. But yeah, in Germany, so there's um, there's usually there's like an association with um, you know these. Uh, the way the like the European sports system works is like there's clubs and then those clubs um, put out a variety of teams and a variety of sports. So for example, you know, Real Madrid people, you know, associate that's a big soccer club, but there's, I'm pretty sure there's a Real Madrid basketball team too, you know, and Real Madrid, I'm sure there's like handball or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so the one I was with had recently been associated um, with Hamburger Sportverein, which is uh, one of the big clubs in Hamburg, Germany, that kind of separated it. Um, but a lot of the other ones were associated with the clubs or had been at the time. And, you know, it's, um, there were foreign players. Uh, there was like a, they were allowed to have, I think three to five foreign players. And and one thing that was interesting to me was that, um, so they would play typically on weekends. These weren't like, you know, really full-time athletes. They would get like small stipends and someone would help them with housing. It was a little bit similar to being a minor league player. Um, and, um, so they would, you'd play on the weekend usually. And, one game would be German pitched and usually the score of that game would be like 15 to 12 or something like that. And then one game would be like foreign pitched, which is usually an American. And that game would be like two to one. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. That is too good. Yeah. Clearly, yeah. clearly showing the, uh, the Germans ability to pitch. I think that that's, that's, yeah. that's pretty cool that they did it that way. Um, and what, yeah. what, I guess what brought you to Germany to want to like, was it let's go to Germany and oh, let me get this job volunteering for a German mm-hmm. baseball club? Or was it, hey, there's this German baseball club I want to volunteer for? How did that process work? Yeah, it's definitely more the, the former. You know, yeah, I, 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 I assumed. Yeah, I've majored in German, but I hadn't gotten a chance to study abroad, um, which is what most majors at my uh, college had done. So that was my real opportunity to kind of take it as a, a gap year almost b- between graduation and trying to figure out what I wanted to do career wise. And you get to hang out in a German uh, baseball stadium. So did you follow yeah. the team around? Like, um, were you on the road with them and everything? And then I guess if, like, how, how did that work? Yeah, so if they played, there's, sometimes they would play, like, um, uh, like neighboring cities. Like, it would be, like, a 40-minute train ride or something like that. And in that case, sometimes I would go to the away games. But other, other times they would go to, say, Berlin or someplace like mm-hmm. that. And I, I wouldn't follow them. But, um, yeah, they were um, – it was pretty interesting. There were um, – the player base was like as usually like either German homegrown guys or as far as the Americans, it was guys who would usually play just like rookie ball or something like that or played in college. And, um, and uh, yeah, it was really interesting. There's, you know, the, a lot of player managers, which was kind of fun too. Um, and usually the planet player manager would be American and would be one of the better, if not the best players on the team. That's funny. Yeah. Put themselves in the game. Come on, yeah. that's that's too funny. Oh, geez, now we're 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 going back a little bit in uh, MLB when that used to happen all the time. But that is sure. that is pretty funny, man. And I guess like, so what you know, if as you said, like most of the stuff was happening on the weekends. What were you doing during the week? Yeah, I mean, so I would go and you know basically help them out however I could. Um, a lot of times, you know, some some things that I would do would I would help out with like their social media if I could if they were. Um, you know, there'd be some sort of labor, like maintaining the field. Um, that was a big part of it. In fact, um, one thing I did was uh, I started to put together video that would show other clubs how to maintain their baseball fields as well and sort of like how we did it. And then so for the other European clubs, they could see, you know, a good way to keep the field in, in tip-top shape. Um, and then, um, you know, if it's just a variety of tasks. I mean, sometimes it'd be like a kid's camp, even like a kids would come on a field trip and, you know, try to throw a baseball with a radar gun or something like that. And that was always kind of fun to watch too, because that's really their first introduction to the sport most of the time. That's cute, man. That's, that's pretty cool. It's also very nice that you created a video that other teams could learn from. Um, again, just helping spread the game because the nicer the, the field, the better everything's going to go and the more people are going to want to play. So I'm, I'm always sure. for that kind of stuff and just getting more people to play the game of baseball. It's my favorite hands down, not even a question, even being a Mets fan, even being depressed, you know, for 162 <laughs> games a year, most likely, um, you know, it's definitely something that I, I still do really love. So after your time hanging out with this German uh, baseball team, which I want to shout out, that is fantastic. Um, you then come back stateside and that's about, as you said, it was like a six to seven months before you put out the Verlander video, correct? 
Right. Yeah. So I, during that time, I was just kind of trying to figure out what comes next. I, you know, I, I, at the time I was living in my hometown, um, in Georgia, working at a homeless shelter, um, just kind of, you know, at my parents' house. And then if I wasn't there, I was at the shelter, basically. I was kind of like an on-call doctor there. I would just go over for like the weekend and spend the night. And so uh, it gave, gave me an interesting perspective. And uh, But it was during that time that I made the Justin Verlander video, which came out, I believe, December of 2018. I think that mm-hmm. sounds right. And that took me from 800 subscribers to 6,000 in about uh, two weeks. And Justin Verlander tweeted about it. And it was just this kind of whirlwind. And I, I worked at the shelter for a couple months after that. But it, it kind of, that was kind of what got the, got me started thinking, hey, maybe this, maybe this is something. Maybe I am yeah. doing something that people, you know, could value and, and something that could lead me to an interesting career. I, mm-hmm. I wasn't even thinking YouTube at the time. I, I was still thinking, you know, maybe someone will see this and hire me, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I mean, that's what I'm hoping for. I'm hoping someone really enjoys one of these conversations mm-hmm. enough that they hire me, but Hey, maybe I could uh, be lucky enough and just continue to do it on my own. Uh, just get paid to do it. Um, so with that, so as you said, you already had 800 subscribers and YouTube's like kind of notorious for being difficult to build that audience, right? It's really easy to click a like button or a follow button, um, you know, on, on Instagram or on Twitter or something, but on YouTube, for whatever reason, subs are weird. Um, yeah. so I mean, to get to 800 is already like a pretty good accomplishment what were you doing before that video was it more videos like that or or you know other types of content that you were just kind of playing around with first of all let me say this is a terrific question because a lot of people you know going from 800 to 6,000 seems like the big jump but actually the fact of the matter is that the hardest 100 subscribers to get is the first 100 and then it gets a little bit easier from then on out so really the hardest subscriber to get is the first one, right? Um, so getting getting from that zero to 100, I would say is just as hard as getting from that 800 to 6,000. Um, so for me, that was, uh, that was not making the type of content I make now. And that was making videos uh, about the PC simulation game out of the park baseball, um, which is a GM sort of uh, simulation series. You, you take control of the team. You're not really playing the game out on the field, but you can coach, you can make the transactions. And I played the game for a few years. I was a big fan, but I felt like it was daunting. And I remember the first time I booted it up, I didn't understand what was going on. And then uh, the new version came out and I was like, okay, I'll try to figure out this version. And I remember that experience and I wanted to sort of give people my perspective of how to play the game just because I didn't feel like there was that much good instructional content out there. Um, so that's kind of where I got those initial first few hundred is I would go to the out of the park baseball subreddit and say, Hey guys, I made, you know, three or four new tutorials if, you know, and this was around the time when the game was coming out. So, uh, you know, it's like, here's how you can, uh, platoon. Here's how you can uh, manage your prospects. Here's, uh, some trading advice for the trade deadline. And so once you make that transition to baseball bits, which is the type of content I make now, I already had sort of that small, audience of baseball nerds and so that made the transition easier for me than it would be for most that kind of change up their content exactly and so what that justin verland was that the first edition of baseball bits that was actually the uh the third um okay. but it was the first one that gained you know mm. serious traction the first ones they got you know a couple hundred views hey man they probably have a couple more now, I'm assuming, right? Yeah, yeah. They're doing all right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say, I'm sure people are going back and watching it. And and yeah, yeah I mean, I, I just think that's something, something that's really interesting about YouTube, that it is so hard to gain subscribers, um, especially, you know, I've had uh, Giraffe Neck Mark on, another notable YouTube uh, baseball content creator. And, and he even said, like, it was really difficult for whatever reason, you know, you'll get a couple hundred thousand views or, or however many views on a video but nobody's subscribing. And, you know, it's just such a very confusing community to me. I mean, I guess with your time being in it, um, you know, what have you seen, I guess, maybe, you know, just to help people out out there listening, like what have you seen is the the easiest or not the easiest, but the best way to gain those subscribers? Yeah. Well, what makes YouTube different from pretty much any other medium right now is that algorithm. And um, that, that, which by the way, I specifically mean to just to clarify the algorithm that recommends videos to you. Mm -hmm. So when you go on YouTube, you watch a video, there's going to be a bunch of other videos on the side. And that's, that's ultimately what drives a lot of traffic to these videos. Um, you might search for something specifically, but more often than not, the majority of the videos views are going to be driven by some sort of YouTube recommending it to you. Um, at least that's how I use the site. Mm-hmm. And that's what the analytics tell me on my side as well. Um, and that, 
people see that as a negative. People see that as a daunting thing. They say, Hey, this, you know, basically this computer program is deciding what I see and what I don't see. And if people don't see my video, then obviously the website's just kind of mad at me for some reason, but it's actually incredible because it's, it's the only, a system like that is the only way you can truly grow from nothing. You know, if, when I went from that 800 to 6,000, that wouldn't ha if I wrote, I could write the best article in the world and I wouldn't get, you know, that, that big of a following. I, you know, I, it could be the, the best, uh, Instagram post, you know, it, it, you know, it, it just wouldn't, you couldn't experience that kind of rapid growth that you can only get through YouTube, I think through that mm -hmm. algorithm. So, um, yeah, I mean, for me, I, I, you know, my technique is completely different from Mark's in, in terms of how I put a, out content. He's, he's all about uploading, you know, multiple times a week. And, um, yeah, he gets, you know, I'm sure he gets way more views than me per month on his channel just because of the sheer volume. Um, but, but I'm more interested in, you know, seeing what I can do with one or two really, really high quality videos a month. And, um, what's cool is that, that always allows me to sort of break through. So I'll put it this way. So each YouTube video, it can kind of penetrate different layers. So the first layer is your subscriber base and your hardcore fans. And it's the people who would even have notifications turned on when you post. And then if you go further out, you can hope to get to like a second layer, which would be, you know, baseball fans, sports fans, people who had seen your videos before, but maybe aren't subscribed. And then you keep moving and moving until you can get maybe into the sort of just like the general public even. So even with like this Astros video, I just recently did a lot of people looking up about the Astros cheating. That's a million views, you know, mm -hmm. that's not, and I only have 90,000 subscribers. So what does that tell you? I've really penetrated, you know, the rest of the, the YouTube audience in a way. So for me, it's always about outperforming how many subscribers I have with each video I do. And so, uh, you know, I have 90, like I said, it's 90 something thousand, but every baseball bits has over a hundred thousand views. So that's for me, the it's to make sure you know you can i don't want to just make videos for my subscribers i want to make for videos for my subscribers and then more if that mm -hmm. makes sense yeah of course because i mean again because as you said even if every single one of your subscribers viewed yeah. the video you're still you're far and above that already you know have you right. have a million hits on a couple of these justin verlander yeah. one specifically i watched the astros one um i watched one recently um that you just referenced the Astros or it was a trash can. You're like, Oh, throw that in the trash. I think it was the Andrews yeah. and Simmons one. Simmons. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, you just have the trash can there. I thought that was funny. And don't worry. Yeah. I have Andrews and Simmons on my paper. I think we're going to have to talk about that a little bit later, especially because sure. he was a brave. So I can see where he's close to your heart and everything, but um, no, man, I, I just think it's so cool. So with, with baseball bits, with foolish baseball, I mean, again, you, you've clearly built an audience. You're clearly doing something really cool where with, with baseball bits specifically, I mean, these are, intensive videos it's not like it's you sitting in front of a camera and talking like you and i are doing right now it mm. is there is a lot of stuff that goes into it so considering you didn't know it was going to come out of it it's pretty impressive that you're like you know what yeah let me let me go this deep and again watching the justin berlander one today just to kind of refresh my memory there's a lot of stuff that you had to do for that like were you did you believe in this kind of thing or was it just like hey like you know, I'm giving back to society by working at this homeless shelter. I really yeah. want to do something for myself too now. Yeah, I think, yeah, it was definitely more the latter. Like I was hoping more people would see it. So the first baseball bits I made was, uh, it was not the Verlander. It was about um, this call that happened in a Braves-Pirates game. Once again, you know, something near, dear to my heart, the Atlanta Braves. I believe it was in 2011. They played this 19-inning epic that ended on what many felt like was like this egregious blown call, basically. Um, the runner was coming home. Uh, the Pirates catcher received the ball with plenty of time. And it appeared the tag had been made and the runner was out, like 100% out, and the umpire called him safe. And I kind of wanted to do a look back at that because the more I looked at the video, the more inconclusive it looked to me that the, that the tag was actually applied. Um, and for me, the reason I made that video and, and did that deep dive was that I was tired of seeing people talk about that call. I thought it was like, <laughs> I just wanted to win arguments online. That was really what the driving factor of it was. We're um, all petty so, on the inside, right? Yeah, I just wanted to really put together a good case. And I'd, I'd been thinking about this play for years. And every time someone brought it up, I kind of would do more research and more research. So finally, I sat down to make the video. And I was like, it's time for me to tell, you know, what my side of this story, at least, because I just think it's... Uh, you know, and I'm not saying that this runner is 100% safe either, but I'm saying 
you know, this is one of those plays that gets cited as um, something that would have uh, inspired MLB to institute instant replay, um, which they have now, but they didn't have at the time. And, um, but I said, even with the instant replay review, would they have found conclusive evidence to overturn it? And I, I thought the answer was no. Um, so it, yeah, I think winning arguments online is a good reason to start making content. Um, and then, um, as far as Verlander, I, you know, it's just, uh, for me, it was just, I wanted to make the type of video that, um, I wanted to watch. And as far as on the YouTube sports landscape, I didn't see it. Um, or at least I didn't see it being actively produced, you know, uh, and, uh, so I wanted to make a, a video for, for people like me. And that's kind of what the Verlander video is about. Yeah. And, and that one, I love it again, watch it this morning just to kind of refresh my memory, but with, with a lot of this stuff, I mean, again, it, I think I, I appreciate your honesty and being a little petty. Cause let's be honest, we're all kind yeah. of petty. We're like, I want to win those arguments too. Like Twitter arguments, we all know nobody wins, but everybody yeah. still argues. Right. So we're still there. Um, and I, and I like that about you and I appreciate the honesty, but especially with like the Verlander one, as even in the video, I can't remember the exact wording you use, but it was a completely nondescript game in like may uh, against i don't even remember who cleveland i think right like in 2012 like where do you come up with this stuff yeah. like where where does that even come from how do you remember well, that yeah. well in that case i'd seen it before so the the not happy jv video which i sort of referenced um had been shared probably about a year or two ago and it, and it had still been on my mind because i couldn't kind of believe what i'd seen i wasn't watching that game in 2012 and I don't think people were talking about it more than a couple days after. So it's just one of those things that kind of came and went and I didn't want people to forget about it. But the more research I did into it is when I realized that I had to make the video because I was like, oh, he's throwing 101 in the eighth and no one else does that. Like literally no one else in the pitch tracking era has done that. So, um, so I think that, you know, oftentimes I'll have sort of like the seed planted from something I saw years ago. And then as I do more research, I can kind of flesh out whether this is good for a 15 minute video or not. And in Verlander's case, it clearly was because he was doing something that no one else could do quite frankly. Yeah. And yeah, especially like he, he was insane, especially back then. And, and thankfully he got good again, but who the heck knows what's going on with the Astros. So I can't really take him at his word anymore, unfortunately, but yeah. it is what it is. And, and I just think it's really, again, like, I think it's very impressive that you put like, how much time does it take for a video like that? Especially in the beginning before you probably got all your, all your processes and structures down. I mean, like this specifically that one we're talking about, how long did that take? Yeah. So I'm, it's tough to remember. I think, I mean, I know for a video now I'm looking at about like, you know, if I spend, you know, 12 days or something like that, doing something every day, um, then, then I could kind of pump it out. I split up the video into sort of like three sort of separate tasks. So the first task is to outline it, write it. Um, I write every video out as if I'm writing, you know, a history essay. So thank you to yeah, there uh, my go. alma yep. mater there. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I, I do take that seriously. Like in history, I learned it's all about you have to write in a authoritative manner. You know, you have to write things, even if it's sort of your thesis, if it's in some ways your opinion, you almost have to write it as if it's fact. And that's mm -hmm. kind of how I approach baseball bits. I have to think what argument am I trying to make and how will I prove it and how will I address the counter argument. So that my history education has honestly been a pretty big part of, of writing it. Um, and then, so I move on to what I would call sort of like the asset creation phase. That's when I make all the artwork. That's when I make, you know, pixel art, the stat graphics. And then the third phase is when I get in the video editor and put it all together. Um, so, and usually each of those will take, you know, three or three, four or five days at a time. Um, as far as the Verlander video, I think I, uh, I would probably guess that one took me um, a little bit closer to uh, three weeks because I was working mm -hmm. uh, at the shelter at the time as well. So that was kind of, you know, slow me down a little bit. But um, I actually spend more time on the videos now than I did in the past just because um, I, I have kind of higher standards for myself that I want to try to meet. And there's some moments in the Verlander video where I, I feel like if I'd um, – put a little bit more time into it, it would have gotten better. Mm -hmm. um, for me, it's important. Um, visually on the screen, I have to change up what's happening quite often because I, I recognize, and I'm part, a huge part of this too, by the way, that I'm making videos very much for the ADHD generation. And you have to kind of always keep things fresh visually. So there are times in the Verlander video where it was clear to me that I did not know what to put on the screen. So I'm just kind of like trying to get through this section of whatever I'm saying. And now it's like, I can't have those moments anymore. So it actually takes longer for me. It's just in terms of pure like 
you know, manpower, man hours, whatever you want to call it to make a video now than it, than it would have at the time I made uh, Verlander and a lot of the earlier ones. But it's ultimately just about trying to keep things fresh and, and keep people interested for this 10 to 15 minute uh, amount of time. Yeah. And again, I think they're, they're so much fun to watch and they're super, the, the thing I like about them the most is the educational, um, like kind of spin approach that you take to it. You teach people what WOBA means. You teach people <laughs> UZR and defensive run saves. And not only that, like, again, going back to the Anderson Simmons one, uh, I can't remember. I think it was, uh, there's the three defensive stats and the one of them that you do throw out, you're just like, this is, you know, I think it's um, fielding percentage or whatever. Right. And you explain why. Not just like, oh, this is stupid. Don't pay attention to it. You, then you give us video clips on, well, this was technically an error and this was a hit. And actually it's the, the, um, the person, the game, whatever the heck, the, the gentleman at the game actually yeah. decides. Somebody, human error comes into contact with this. So I think it's really interesting again. Um, was, and again, because in the Justin Verlander one, the, the first one or one of the first ones, it's always been like that. Was that kind of something set in stone from the beginning where you're like, hey, look, again, because you want to reach the masses, I want to make sure that people understand what us baseball nerds, quote unquote, are talking right. about. Um, yes and no. So like obviously in the Verlander video, there's this moment where I take – like three minutes or three or four minutes to explain like the importance of fastball spin rate and how, you know, the stat cast age and how we've been measuring it and how even before that in the pitch FX era, which is uh, 2008 onwards, you could look at the velocity of the baseball and the movement of the baseball and it would estimate spin rate and how that was, and how that was different from the actual measured spin rate that you can get with stat cast since 2015. Um, yeah so for me it's like it's always trying to find a balance right like I know the people that that watch this particularly the subscribers know their stuff but I also want to always be growing the audience so every time I mention a certain statistic like an OPS plus or a or a, um what's another good example you know some of those defensive um metrics we mentioned earlier I kind of have to ask myself am I going to explain what this is again and if so how much attention am I going to give to it so for a video I'm working on right now it's convenient when you get one good explainer in because so Simmons, I explained the defensive metrics really clearly and I took a lot of time to do it. And then now in the next video I'm working on, I am citing some of those metrics, some of the, that defensive run saved UZR. And I, and I can just say, Hey, if you want to learn more about that, you know, let's not, you know, let's not uh, mm -hmm. mess up the flow of this video, but you can go back and watch Angleton Simmons if, if that's not clear to you. So I think, you know, I, for me, I want to make, and I've realized this now, but I did not realize this at the time to answer your question. Um, mm -hmm. I want to make the, the saber metric, the analytical side, whatever you want to call it. I want to make that side of the game more accessible to people. And, but I also want to make it fun and I want to show that it's not soulless and joyless and that you can, you know, if you know what DRS and UZR is, then you can enjoy Andrelton Simmons more, you know, and I mm -hmm. think that's really cool. If you know what, how the framing metrics work, you can enjoy Jeff Mathis or Austin Hedges more, you know, it, and that's, to me, that's really cool. If you can enjoy, you know, if you know how spin rate works, you can enjoy Justin Verlander more. And that's to me what it's not, it's about, it's not about breaking players down. It's not about making them um, look bad with some of these metrics. It's about building people up. And I think that's, what's going to make uh, people understand these things more. And I think it's important they understand it because that's how the teams are run these days. Mm -hmm. And yeah I, exactly. uh, yeah, I should say this to my viewers more often, but, they, the people who watch my videos and they, they feel as if they've been enlightened for the first time, they spend a good amount of time arguing with people on Twitter about, uh, you know, how a hundred RBI doesn't really matter in a season or something like that, for example, or the pitcher win or, or, or you know, fielding percentage or something like that. Um, and they feel like they're fighting this battle, but the battle's already been won because that's the baseball teams are run that way. The players understand this, the GM, the, the manager, they all understand these things. But the problem is that there's a communication gap because when you turn on the TV broadcast, it doesn't always seem like the broadcasters are, you know, they don't seem to be communicating the perspective that the GM or the players themselves have as far as, you know, what constitutes what, what a good performance and what doesn't. So for me, it's about kind of creating that sort of content where I can take, you know, these, these technical terms that, that are understood in the industry and then present them to a wider audience and hope to increase a greater understanding of what's happening in the game. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I mean, you make a really good point. Like the managers, everybody already knows this. Like, yeah, yeah we like it because we're a base 10 number system, right? We like seeing one zero zero. That's mm -hmm. just kind of how it works. It's, it's a cool thing too. Right. But 
99 versus 100 versus 101, unless right. any of those were the game-winning RBI, nobody really gives a shit, right? So it doesn't really yeah. matter that much. But I totally agree with you that the broadcast does sometimes not quite get there. And I think mm-hmm. that's something that can be improved. And, and you're totally right. Like I enjoy Justin Verlander more now because I know exactly what's happening. I mm-hmm. always enjoyed Anderson Simmons. Actually, I really disliked him because he was playing against the Mets. But <laughs> watching him play is incredible. You know, he's obviously our generation's Ozzie Smith. Hopefully he can get better at hitting. And, and you know, I'll, I'll, I'll show them the video that you made because it is awesome. But I just think it's so cool how you're, be, you're able to kind of connect those dots and, and be able to do that. Because I think, again, it, it leads to penetrating more of that market, which is exactly what you were talking about. Yeah, most definitely. And I just think, and like I said, I didn't realize this was the goal until probably, you know, a few months ago that, that ultimately that this is what I wanted to do with the series was make those sort of things accessible, you know, and I, I cared about them, but I did, I didn't quite realize that, you know, now when I talk about the series baseball bits, now I know that that truly that's what it's about. That it's mm-hmm. just about, um, and because the thing is the baseball nerds are going to read their blogs and I read the blogs all day, you know, I'm on fan graphs all day, you know, <laughs> that's just kind of who I am. But, but the people who watch their sports, you know, via video or YouTube, they're, they're probably not on the blogs all day. So I just kind of want to bridge that gap. hundred mm-hmm. percent. Yeah. There's that, there is that middle space that most people live in, right. You know, not like yeah. you and I, who's like, you know, you click B and baseball reference immediately pops up in my browser. Not everybody's oh, yeah. like that. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a little different. And then I guess with, with that, again, so I love the educational approach you take and, and just kind of teaching people a lot of these things, the UZR and, and, you know, these metrics, but also just what is going on. Where did the, like, 8-bit style of it come from? Like, what, what did you, were you a tech mobile guy growing up, or, or what were you doing? Yeah, yeah. so it's funny because I was, you know, um, I'm too young to um, really have experienced this era of video gaming. Like I said, I was born in 1995, and that's that's sort of the look of um, the video I make now is it looks like a video game from the nineties basically. And I didn't touch a video game until, you know, probably the early mid two thousands. So um, that's not the type of video games I grew up playing. It, what it really stems from at least when I started uh, was technical limitation. You know, I, I um, I'm not a gifted artist, but when you only have so many pixels to worry about that maybe I can generate, you know, something that, vaguely uh, resembles a baseball player so I make all these cool kind of pixel art uh, sprites of each baseball player and I couldn't do anything you know that looks like realistic so really what it came down to was wanting to have a defined aesthetic and for me you know I talk about things happening on the screen it's very important to me that someone would be able to mute the video and still know who it's from Um, that's I think that's a big part of it so I just wanted everything to it when people click on a video they have to almost know immediately like who is this and who made it just by the look of it. And so having this defined art style, I think has been really key as far as, you know, just the branding and and people can look at the thumbnail hopefully and see even, you know, Oh, that's clearly, that's a foolish baseball. That's the video game baseball guy. I want to watch this. So it's really stemmed from, from technical limitations at first, but now I'm actually quite fond of it. So. Yeah, I I think it's cool. So both of them, the educational and the, and the, the artistic style, both kind of, they were there in the beginning because they kind of had to be. And now it's, it's almost a part of your brand and it's what people can expect kind of moving forward. I think that that's, that doesn't happen too often, man. It seems like you, uh, you hit the jackpot there. Yeah. I, I kind of look back on that early video. And I'm like, this really is, it's shocking to me how it's not really that different from what I do now, you know? And yeah. um, I, most people, you know, they, they'll try like, you know, three, four, you know, tons of dozens of different things. And I just feel like just on a whim kind of landed on something that worked for me. And so far I've stuck with it and the results have been quite nice. Quite nice. Absolutely. So I think one thing, uh, you know, I, I brought up before we started chit chatting a little here with the, uh, with the record button on is, you know, obviously, as you said, so you were kind of hanging out for lack of a better term after college, obviously hanging out in Germany, yeah. working with the baseball team, volunteering, come over here. Vibing. <laughs> Again, a vibing, so I was yeah. vibing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> throwing, throwing those good vibes, having that good yeah. energy. Um, and then, so you come over here stateside, you start working as an essentially, I'm going to throw heavy quotes, but a doctor at a, uh, a home. Whoa, shelter. no, no, no. I was <laughs> no, saying no. like, you know, I was doing <laughs> no, overnight I'm kidding, stuff. I'm like kidding, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, but no, psychologist um, maybe. No. <laughs> <laughs> Love it, dude. Um, and, and really, I mean, doing a lot of that. And then I guess, you know, again, this started to kind of pop off a little bit, like at what point, like, obviously that means you have to make enough money. I don't want to know how many dollars you make, but I'm always yeah. curious, like, 
at what point were you like, okay, legitimately, this is, this is fun. This is something I want to do, but I'm actually making enough money where I don't have to do this job anymore. And I can focus solely on doing this over here. Yeah. So I'll give you the timeline. So December 18, Justin Verlander video, um, quit the job at the shelter, I think end of February and moved out in May. So, um, but that was still with, um, I say this is so important for people to understand, especially because this is, um, you know, something, this is a podcast about sort of like the sports business and, and we're kind of starting to get into that aspect of it. Um, I wouldn't have been able to do what I was able to do if not for sort of the background I was from. I, you know, I was privileged enough to have parents where I could, you know, come back from Germany and not have a plan and live with them. And I could go work at that homeless shelter and basically save all the money, you know, and, um, and then I could knowingly move out, you know, and even if I failed, all I would end up is back at my parents' house, basically. There was no, you know, there's no rock bottom. There's no fear of like not having enough shelter or enough food to eat. And when you're talking about something entrepreneurial like this, that's important because yes, you know, I took a risk when I was moving out in May when it wasn't clear to me whether I would have enough money to support myself full time. But at the same time, like, uh, you know, the the consequences would have been just back to square one. It wouldn't have been catastrophic. So that's that that aspect of it is very important. So I moved out in May, and I think around the time when I realized that this was actually going to work was probably more like uh, around you know October November of of 2018. And now I'm going into this, and you know the business, you know, for lack of a better term, has been kind of booming these first uh, couple months of. Uh, sorry, I mean 2019. Um, yeah, but yeah, yeah. business uh, business has been booming, uh, you know, early in 2020, and I think a lot of that's kind of been the good fortune of having been both sponsored by the Athletic and um, them having been the ones that broke the Houston Astros story, which completely changed the way baseball offseason goes, and it's completely thrust baseball to the forefront of uh, you know even just American culture in general, even during the offseason because this cheating scandal is just so incredible and i was able to kind of capitalize on that and make my first baseball bits that got a million views off of it so you know things are going pretty well for me right now obviously when you know income is inconsistent because so much of it is based on youtube ad revenue and i'm also aware of the fact that just because this is youtubers go through this that the the looming specter of demonetization is always there so for me i think 2020 is going to be a year about trying to see if I can generate enough money so that even if I lost that revenue that I'd still be able to support myself and do what I want to do. So, yeah. Um, you know, it's, it happens kind of gradually. There's never a moment where you're like, Oh, now I can take it full time. But, um, you know, the moment where I, I started to risk it would have been, you know, May 2019. And mm-hmm. in the past few months, it's, I've started to realize that that was probably the right move. Yeah. Yeah, because you have to put some sort of pressure on yourself a little bit, right? Like if you're still at your parents' house, it's still like you can, you know, like, you know, mom does the laundry, mom washes it, you know, it's that kind of you're super comfortable in that spot. Not to say that your mom did your laundry or washed your dishes or anything, but yeah, again, she did, but yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say like every time I go back home, even if it's just for a Sunday, I kind of get back into that lull of, okay, I'm home, like nothing can go wrong here. Everything's fine. But I totally agree. Like moving out and putting a little bit of pressure on yourself to say, well, I need to make money because I need to pay rent. You didn't need right. to do anything at home, right? It was more of a, yeah. I, I got to. Um, now you get to do it still too, but now you get to make a, a good amount of money or better amount of making it. And I think you're totally right. Like taking something negative and switching it into a positive kind of like you did with the Houston Astros. And I'm not a huge fan. I, I mean, I wanted them to win, um, I'm not a big fan of the Nationals. I'm assuming you aren't either being you know, in the NL East. But right. with Bryce Harper leaving, I kind of thought it was funny. And then the cheating stuff came out. And I was like, all right, maybe I kind of do want the Nationals to win in like this weird way. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, man, I mean, you were able to take something and run with it. And I guess then jumping more into the business side. Also, thank you for being very honest about your life as well. I think that is very important for a lot of people to know. Like you didn't you were in a great situation. You were able to take advantage of it. I personally yeah. believe we're all dealt a hand of cards and you played yours to a team, man. So congratulations. And you deserve all the credit. You earned it. You did everything. But I, I appreciate your honesty on that front. Um, going back to the business side a little bit with like YouTube monetization, as you were talking about in the demonetization, working with sponsors, like how, how does that work? Did they reach out to you? How does YouTube ad revenue even work? Like I think people yeah. are always very interested because a million seems like a great number, but 
Do you get like a couple cents for each one? Like I actually don't even know how that stuff works. Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, most YouTubers are like, they just don't want you to know any of that. Um, I'm, I'm actually okay with being like somewhat transparent. Um, yeah. I don't want to so, know how much money you make. Like, I'm just yeah. kind of curious, like wh- what number, kinda how it works. Yeah, yeah. Just how it works. So um, right now, my main um, income streams are via sponsorships and the YouTube ad revenue. And I've also recently launched a Patreon, but um, my focus in, in 20 is going to be just kind of growing that. And so it's not at a point where it's a significant amount of money. Although, you know, if any of my Patreon people are listening to this, like genuinely, I appreciate it. And it, it does mean a lot. And, um, you know, it's definitely going to help um, every little bit counts. Um, but yeah, so you get, um, uh, you know, basically you get monetized um, when you reach a thousand subscribers and a certain number of watch hours. I can't remember how many it is, but it might be 4,000 or something like that. I had it. I had way more than that many watch hours by the time I got to a thousand. I think that's probably what most happened happens to most people too so that's not a huge barrier you can apply for the youtube partner program and in that case they will start running ads on your videos or at least the videos that they deem advertiser friendly and um and you and basically they take uh, i think it's a 55 45 split and i think we get the 55 and they get the 45 i'm not sure i hope you maybe do too. You maybe it's the it. other way around i don't know but i know there's a split somewhere in there and um so um you know, and you, it kind of gets collected, uh, monthly. And I would, and so in my case, I get paid, you know, monthly. So for example, the money that I collected from ads in February will get paid out to me, uh, you know, at the, towards the end of March. So that aspect of it is kind of interesting as well. You know, kind of have to, uh, you know, make sure you always have enough uh, money in your account to deal with immediate expenses, because sometimes even if you hit that big payday views wise, it's not coming to you until later. Um, you know, you talked about a million views. Um, that what that actually amounts to in dollars and cents is completely different for depending on what type of video you make. So um, you have what's called a, a CPM, and that kind of tells you the rate of you know how every you know thousand views I get, how many how many dollars and cents do I get? And it's completely different, and it's based on uh, the advertiser itself. So for example, like if you're uh if you make videos about something where people are very likely to consume or like you know click on the ads or spend a lot of money um then your cpm is going to be high so high cpm would be like uh usually things that have to deal with tech uh because tech products are you know usually expensive you know if you click on a review for a a, you know 500 Mm -hmm. computer processor that's different from a you know a 50 dollars subscription to the athletic right um so, and then beauty products, that's a high CPM thing. And then once you get to the lower CPM, gaming, I think is pretty low. And um, so for me, it changes all the time. You have more luck, um, more at the end of the year when people are, you know, shopping, it's the holidays. And then it kind of at the beginning of the year, like January, February, your CPM gets a little bit lower. But for me, throughout most of my YouTube career, um, a thousand views has been equal to like three to five dollars if i had to guess so um you know you could do the math on that but um okay. um that's 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 what it amounts to for me in terms of ad revenue mm-hmm. and, and I, um, I appreciate that you didn't even have to be that honest yeah. but i appreciate but, you really yeah. going through it well i don't i don't mind it either because if people are going to be supporting me on patreon they should kind of understand that you know i'm not you know living in a tent on the street you know i'm <laughs> doing all right without them but um yeah, but you know, for someone that could be fifty cents, and for someone else that could be twenty dollars. So it's completely different depending on just what mm-hmm. kind of channel you run. Mm-hmm. And that—that's that, I appreciate the transparency. I think it's really cool because yeah, I mean, again, had Mark on, he explained a little bit about kind of how it goes. But it, it's really interesting to me, just kind of there's this whole industry out there, right? Like YouTuber is a job title for some yeah. people. Um, and you know, I think it is very interesting kind of how it works and how some of these channels grow. And and you know, obviously, I hope you're making more as much money as you possibly can. And I also think it's awesome that the athletic, um, that relationship started. So was that something where you saw like, Hey, I have this huge audience. I'm getting all these views and everything. Let me reach out to them. Or, or was that more of a, they reached out to you and said, Hey, you're doing some cool stuff. We want to talk to you. Yeah. So for the most part, sponsorships have gotten, when I first got started, I remember making like a big list of potential sponsors. And so I had like, um, you know, baseball card resellers, ticket people, um, you know, people who sell, you know, any sort of like baseball related type merch or equipment. And, um, um, but in recently it's been more of, of a, 
dynamic where the sponsor reaches out to me first and that that's good for me because I, it kind of gives me more leverage um, mm-hmm. yeah. in terms of negotiations. Um, it's been really interesting. Um, you know, I just had to, to negotiate your own sponsor deal has been really interesting for me. Not everyone does that because a lot of people are part of what are called multi-channel networks and they handle that aspect for the YouTuber and they get them the deals. Um, but that's not really how I roll. <laughs> um, I, I actually quite like uh, working out deals with the sponsors. And oftentimes when I do that, um, sometimes I'm just negotiating, you know, dollars per video or something like that. And I always, this is important. Um, I always do it for a flat fee. There's no commission aspect to it. There's no, you know, if enough people sign up um, with a link in my description, then I get money from that. It's always, no, you pay me this money up front and then whatever happens, happens basically. Um, so for me, it's, it's, um, you know, I get that flat fee and oftentimes when I'm not negotiating is the money. Oftentimes they're kind of set on the money, but what I am negotiating is the level of, I would say intrusion into my viewers. So instead of, Hey, 30 seconds pre-roll, let's do 15 seconds pre-roll and then maybe 30 at the end or 10 at pre, you know, I, it's, for me, it's important to sort of maintain that autonomy and they can almost worry about the dollars and cents more. Now, lately mm-hmm. I've been, as I, as you get more sponsorship deals, your value becomes more apparent to you because you know, if this company is willing to give you this much money and this company is willing to give you this much money, and then this company kind of comes in and lowballs you, then you know to say no basically, or to say, Hey, no, I want this much because this is how much I've been making and my views have only gone up. So, you know, that aspect of being a YouTuber, like has really raised kind of my business acumen, my, uh, my ability to negotiate, my ability to self-evaluate and realize, you know, just how valuable uh, a spot is on uh, one of my videos, especially when, like I said earlier, like this is a guaranteed, this is a hundred thousand view floor and, you know, potentially a million view ceiling. So um, I'm doing pretty well on the sponsorship front. Although I will say ad revenue, I believe at this moment still, yeah, it would still make up like the majority of the income, but sponsorship revenue helps. And the way it helps especially is the consistency, because if Mm -hmm. you know you have X amount of money coming your way every month, then you can have kind of a bad month with the ad revenue. And, um, and you know, like I said, the inconsistency is tough because there've been months where I, I make, uh, you know, I won't give you the exact number, but I, I'll make like the X amount of money. And then I'll, the next month I'll make half that much in terms of ad revenue. And, you know, if your job works like that, if your salary works like that, you, you know, you'd go crazy. <laughs> but um, when you have the sponsorship thrown in, it keeps the, that consistency as far as the income and it helps you sort of realize um, at the end of the year, like, oh, at the end of the year, I'll hopefully have made this much money because I know at least I have this much coming to me guaranteed, regardless of what happens in terms of the ad revenue and the algorithm. So, so sponsorships have been important, but I, I'd also, you know, I, I also am trying to focus this year on making sure I get a couple of videos that aren't sponsored. Um, just, uh, um, just for the viewer experience too. Mm-hmm. So I care about that too. And some of those non-sponsored videos, um, one video that's non-sponsored on my channel is the Tim LaCastro video. And it's, it ends so abruptly, um, which is kind of part of the joke. I, it's, I say, if you don't like Tim LaCastro, then you can buzz off. That's it. End the video. No sponsor. Get out of my sight. Those are the last lines. And to me that, that joke, it just wouldn't work without, with, you know, yeah. if it wasn't ad free. So <laughs> yeah. You kind and of you have you, the, the athletic yeah. come in at the end. No, just kidding guys. Stick yeah, around. No, just yeah. kidding. Here's 30 seconds on why you should spend. Yeah. So for me, it's like, the sponsorships have been a big part of the channel as of late. And um, yeah, my relationship with the athletic in particular has been really nice just because it's a good fit. You know, these are yeah. uh, their pitch to me was basically the athletic is about storytelling and people who watch my video care about, you know, good storytelling. So I hope, you know, this continues to uh, be a good relationship that the athletic and I have, you know? Yeah. I hope so for you too. I think the athletic is an incredible site and what they do and just ha- the high quality aspect of it, um, I think is, is very important. And again, I think it does, you know, from a, from a artistic standpoint, it's very high quality. It looks like, again, it's eight bit and it's from like the early nineties, but it, you obviously put a significant amount of time into it. As you said, you write all these scripts. Um, there is a huge amount of storytelling in what you do. And I think that that part's very important. And yeah, it's always nice to kind of create these authentic relationships with brands that have the same missions, morals, and values as you. So congratulations. Um, 
And, and, and on that front, on the business acumen front, I see, no, one thing I've noticed is obviously your YouTube page, you have significant following. You have a nice amount of subscribers. I see on Twitter, you got a couple, you know, 20 something thousand, if I'm not mistaken. I did not check your Instagram, so I apologize there. But you also even have one. So. Don't even have one. Look at that. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even have to. I should have just shut my mouth and I would have looked mm-hmm. fine. Um, but I know now you're also with um, creating the podcast as well, which is why I reached out to you because obviously, um, you know, we must unite. But uh, no, so yeah. I mean, like what, again from a business acumen standpoint how like creating i guess multiple different platforms for yourself when was that something where you're like i need to take this a little bit more seriously as well again and patreon too need to take this more seriously again to kind of mm-hmm. create that floor a little bit more yeah i th- yeah the floor that's a good way of putting it you know i, I you want to raise that floor um you know enjoy the peaks but if you can make the valleys less harsh in terms of the income that's that's gonna be better for your mental health for sure um yeah, you know, um, it's for me. It's about slow expansion, right? So I, um, you, in, I first started just making the videos, and then when Verlander blew up, I made the Twitter. And the Twitter game, I take extremely like seriously. Like I'm mean, having fun on there. Don't get me wrong, but for me, growing the Twitter has been so important because I see all these. Um, there's a lot of channels that they can pull in good subscriber count, good view counts, and then if you go and you look at how many people follow them on other platforms it's it's not that uh it's not that great at least not at great in comparison to the mm-hmm. the audience they have on YouTube and um you know people people who do YouTube as a career are are all terrified of YouTube uh they are i mean it's just like i said the the looming specter of demonetization the the fact that they change policies uh you know pretty often um you know, so for me, wanting to build like an independence almost from YouTube as a YouTuber, um, you know, I get that that's an oxymoron, but you know, I, I really concentrate on growing that Twitter and, um, making sure I'm posting good content on there as well, whether that's just be a funny joke or, uh, some, I'll make even little small videos for Twitter themselves, or I'll, I'll do, uh, you know, uh, stats or something like that. If I find an interesting stat or a factoid, that's a good thing to post on Twitter. And, and so now at this point, I have, you know, 22,000 followers on Twitter. And I know people with hundreds of thousands of subscribers who don't have that. And so, mm-hmm. and that, you know, and, and also a fifth, 20% of the people who follow me on Twitter don't know it's a YouTube channel. <laughs> so I'm really starting to cultivate this separate yeah. audience. Um, and then, yeah, this year, like I said, concentrate on the Patreon and see if I can grow that. And then I, the way I see it, maybe if I'm still doing this 2021, I think maybe the next sort of avenue is merchandise, you know. Uh, it would yeah, people want to wear throw some of those sprites on a t-shirt. I, yeah. mean, I would wear a Jacob deGrom. That would be awesome. Especially yeah. with the long hair. Hell yeah, man. I mean, I'll say this specifically. One of the reasons why I haven't done that yet is because I don't know how it works. Like, so some people have, like, I think in order to do that, I would basically need like licensing from mm-hmm. MLBPA because otherwise I'm profiting off someone's likeness, uh, which, you know, I don't know if, if legally I'm allowed to do that, I don't think so. But I think especially for me, ethically, I, there's no way I can do that. Um, but that doesn't mean, you know, I can't, uh, you know, make money off the Foolish Baseball brand itself. It just means I won't have to be able to lean on certain players. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so um, it's just slow expansion because I don't want to get too much on my plate. So like I mentioned not having an Instagram earlier. That's, I mean you know, no, no offense to Instagram. It's just not my favorite social media. And, um, I just don't, I just don't really see how, uh, it would help me relative to the amount of time I would have to invest to actually make it like a worthwhile experience for people to follow. Cause I'm already investing a lot in Twitter and, you know, I still have to make the videos at the end of the day after I finish negotiating these sponsorship deals. So, you know, it's, it's for me is with this being a one man operation, it's, it's about balance. And I would rather expand too slowly than too quickly. Cause if I have too much to juggle, then ultimately what's going to suffer is the YouTube channel mm-hmm. and the videos. And that's, that's, that's what, that's what generates the income. So. Yeah. I was going to say that's your breadwinner right now. So you yeah. have to make sure that one of overall things. And, and it is really interesting. Again, spoken to a couple YouTubers and it is, everyone's terrified of YouTube. And I do think it's, I, I don't know if it's a great tactic by YouTube or if it's a terrible one, or if it's just, you know, if you're aware of it, it's a good thing to, as you've been doing, just continue mm-hmm. to expand in a couple of different areas. That way, again, we're kind of rising and keeping that floor as high as possible um, right. where, yeah, the ceiling can be great, especially in November, December, as you said, let's hope that that ceiling is, you know, what glass ceiling, let's break through that shit and just see what happens. But keeping that floor nice and uh, nice and high as well, I think is important. And um, 
So what about, so you are, you are creating a podcast, right? Is that for the Patreon or is that right. just for fun? Um, so, uh, well, I'll say this, uh, the, ah. the foolish baseball podcast is, um, it's going to be legendary. It's going to be, <laughs> um, the greatest podcast you've never heard. Um, and, um, you know, it's going to, when you look at the, ch- the podcast charts, there's a number one, like, so the number one podcast, this one's going to be number zero. It's going to be above that. It's going to come, you're going to, every single podcast app you download, it's going to come pre-subscribed to pre-installed and you're going to get all, uh, all of the uh, great episodes of the Foolish Baseball podcast. And, and that's all I'm going to say about it for now. My goodness. Yeah. I cannot wait. I'll buy a new phone just so, and I'll download all those apps just so I can get it pre-installed. How's that sound? I'll just sure. go look, yeah. go around looking for it. <laughs> I appreciate, I appreciate your, uh, you being very humble about it and I appreciate yeah. you being very, um, very honest. I think those well, you want to set realistic are... goals. For exactly. Yourself, for sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Number zero, uh, infinity. Yeah. This is the best podcast that ever mm-hmm. existed. Well, hopefully I can ride some of your coattails then if you don't mind, I really appreciate yeah, sure. that. But, um, no man. And I think, um, just a couple more questions. So I don't know if you have to get running in a minute or so, but I do have a couple more if it's all right with you. Um, one thing uh, I hear you were, you had a hand in Larry Walker getting inducted into the hall of fame. What, um, yeah. is that a rumor that's just going around or is that, you know, are you, how much credit are you taking on that? Yeah, so I so I myself am the subject of this rumor, and yet I cannot actually tell you if it's true. Um, <laughs> uh, I'll say this much: the Larry Walker Hall of Fame candidacy benefited greatly from uh, not just me, but a lot of people. Um, I'll shout out a few: uh, Manny, uh, who who co-wrote the, who wrote the um, uh, Blake Street Bombers book, uh, MLB writer. I don't know how to say his last name. It starts with an R, but he, he was big on that. And then hot stove stats, Connor Looker, uh, and plenty of others. Uh, I think Ryan Spader was, uh, the ace of Spader was kind of big on the Walker candidacy as well. Um, so really there's just kind of like a collective of baseball nerds who were basically flooding social media with posts and stats about Larry Walker for, I mean, even multiple years, um, as he was, um, as his hall of fame candidacy, was basically looking dead in the water a couple of years ago. He experienced this huge influx of votes that really hasn't happened before. He had, he had two of the biggest vote gaining years back to back in his last two years of candidacy that ultimately culminated in him being inducted by six votes um, in his last year of eligibility, which is crazy. So as far as me individually, having done a lot of posting about Larry Walker, having made the so you didn't vote for Larry Walker video, um, I can't say, but I think what I did do is I contributed to this energy surrounding his candidacy where we made it okay for people to re-examine Larry Walker's Hall of Fame case, even if they'd written him off previously. And a big part of this vote game was that he, earlier in his candidacy, he was, there were times where he was, you know, like the 12th best player on the ballot. And there were a lot of like clear Hall of Famers on the ballot ahead of him. So he wasn't getting prioritized, but when he gets to the end, all of a sudden, you know, I thought last year he was, uh, I mean, he was far and away to me clearly uh, on last year's ballot um, with the exception of maybe Jeter, like the best player who isn't either a steroid user or like some sort of, uh, you know, uh, white nationalist. So that that has been a big, uh, that's been a big key for his success is that ballot kind of got cleared out. And, um, and so I made it, and uh, we all made it possible for, for writers to hopefully re-examine his case when they had previously written him off and said not a Hall of Famer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always have loved Larry Walker. Um, I, I mean, I follow a lot of the guys that you just shouted out, Hasso Stats, Ryan Spader, and you know, I've been seeing a lot of that stuff. I know Ryan Spader had a huge um, impact, and maybe it was all of you again uh, with you know, Tim Raines a couple of years ago. I thought that was sure. you know, when he was going nuts with all those statistics, it made it just so much mm-hmm. easier, especially now with the way we pay attention to baseball. Just because we didn't pay attention to it back then like that doesn't mean everything he wasn't doing wasn't incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, there's always going to be on the ballot, I would say sort of the sabermetric darling. So Reigns was clearly one of them. Walker was clearly one of them. The previous year, Edgar Martinez was one of them. Um, yeah. And that, you know, in the future, I could see it being, uh, you know, Billy Wagner, maybe I could see it being even like a Bobby Abreu type. Bobby Abreu has like this really weird hall of fame case, even though he doesn't immediately, nothing about Bobby Abreu to me screams hall of fame, you know, in terms of just his uh, reputation, but his numbers are comparable to some, 
And um, yeah, and, and that's always going to happen. And so hopefully uh, Scott Rowland, Andrew Jones, or a couple more of these guys. Um, yeah, so it's, it's interesting to see as the electorate itself shifts, how that's going to change what the profile for a Hall of Fame inductee looks like. Because, I mean, if Larry Walker were, uh, you know, if, well, maybe he's not a great example, but if Tim, you know, it, it would be hard for um, kind of a Tim Raines type to get into the Hall of Fame if it weren't for this sabermetric movement, uh, yeah. I think for sure. Because it wasn't yeah. just, he was this incredible base dealer and on base guy, you know, kind of like a, a Ricky Henderson light. But, you know, um, one thing that really set him apart was the efficiency of his base dealing. He didn't get caught ever. Um, he, you know, for the volume that he ran, he he so rarely got caught. And that was a big part of his candidacy. So, yeah, I, I just hope that, you know, through, and like I said, that's kind of the mission of this channel, through looking at some of these different metrics, we can shine a light on some of these players that were perhaps underappreciated in their own time. And and we, we touched upon it a little bit, the Angleton Simmons one. Um, you know, I will be 100% honest with you, Bailey. When I watched that, I was like, there is no shot that this guy is <laughs> yeah. going to make me think. I think Angleton Simmons may be one of the greatest defensive players that I'll ever watch in my life, but dude can barely swing a bat. But you make a extremely compelling case that if he just you know again last couple of years he was kind of injured if i'm not mistaken or at least, yeah last year um, yeah last year it was it was it was pretty unfortunate but it's also just frustrating that he's the number three hitter now not anymore but he was the number three hitter in the angels lineup and just like the angels man mike trout r.i.p him but um you know just you made an extremely compelling case and you at least made me think about it right like i went right. in with a very defined no no, like, no, no, no shot. But mm-hmm. after looking at it and, you know, you did legitimate projections and, hey, if he stays on this path, this and the other thing, you make a pretty darn good case for Angleton Simmons. So where did the, the love and where, like, what, where do some of these ideas come from, especially something like that and the Larry Walker one? Like, where do these come from sometimes? Yeah. Well, I hadn't, you know, in, in this terms of the Simmons, I hadn't had an opportunity to talk about some of these defensive metrics. And I thought he would be pretty much the perfect vehicle to, to go into depth about these. So it definitely stemmed from that. I mean, I said in the beginning of the video that, that Andrelton Simmons hall of fame has kind of just been a hot take that's been stewing and everyone's kind of has their, their hot takes, their personal hot takes that they're, they're kind of working on and justifying. And, and for me, the Andrelton Simmons, you know, could be a hall of famer is, is definitely a hot take of mine. Um, but yeah, it's just a, in, in, yeah, in terms of the Walker, it was just, I mean, this guy, uh clearly deserves to be in the hall of fame and i'm so glad he got in um people have been asking me since then to hey can you do the same thing for scott Rowland, andrew jones some of these guys that are on the ballot and as much as i think those guys deserve to get in it's just like to me walker was just such an outlier he was such a talented player and um it would have been if he hadn't gotten into the hall of fame he would have been in my opinion probably like with the exception of like some of these like, you know, shoeless Joe Jackson, Pete Rose, steroid user types, probably the most singular talented baseball player to not be in the hall of fame. I, I genuinely believe that because he was just the numbers he put up despite the injuries, just ridiculous. Um, so that, that was just something I was kind of indignant about. And I would say would be the right word. Um, but as far as Simmons, you know, I just wanted a vehicle to talk about some of these defensive metrics um, he was obviously near and dear to my heart as a former Atlanta Brave. He was one of my favorite players when he was a Brave. And um, I just, uh, yeah, I just think it's, you know, the, to me, it just comes down to that outliers interest me um, more than anything. You know, like it's, I talked about LeCastro, he's an outlier in terms of his hit by pitches and his speed. Jeff Mathis is an outlier in terms of his offense and his defense and his intangibles. So Simmons is the ultimate outlier defensively in terms of just how great he is at defense, even compared to good defenders from today. And so that's kind of what it comes down to is you want to talk about people who stand out in one quality or another. hundred percent. And with the Simmons one specifically, did you, were you, um, did you go into it thinking like, Hey, I want to talk about these defensive metrics or was it, Hey, I want to make a case for him to go into the hall of fame. Like where were you, like, did you learn the more you learned did the more you kind of, believe your hot take how did that work yeah well I've so I always believed my hot take there's no I didn't need to convince myself but um I did have to put myself in the shoes of the audience and figure out how to convince them and there's no way to convince them without like you said talking about DRS Mm -hmm. and UZR because it's not like his fielding percentage is going to be you know oh my gosh he had a 985 fielding percentage and the next best had 983 induct him now first ballot you know that's just not how it works so um yeah, I, I definitely think it was about uh, Simmons first, but the fact that I was able to talk about some of those defensive metrics was great. And um, 
yeah, I just think, you know, if, if Ozzie Smith is sort of the, uh, the template for this type of hall of famer, and I think Ozzie Smith should be in the hall of fame. Um, I think he's deserving then, then Simmons could be next, you know, because, um, like I said, these are similarly talented defenders and Simmons has actually been a better hitter through age 30 than Smith and Smith was a better hitter post age 30. But, um, if, if Simmons, you know, just a few, just a few, you know, hundred WRC plus hundred OPS plus, wherever you want to put it, league average hitting years combined with his defense. I mean, that's, you know, that's a four or five win player every year. So, and that, that could easily result in the hall of fame, you know, if he can continue on his uh, current trajectory. And mm-hmm. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, stay healthy. And again, I'll, I'll watch him play defense. I'll watch his highlights any day of the week, man. I love yeah. it. Um, so that's about all I have. I mean, we can talk about the season being delayed, but no one really wants to hear about that right now. I could ask you how the Braves are going to do, but I think, well, here we go. Do you think Acuna is going 40-40? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think he'll get to the 40. I think he's more likely to get to the 40 homers than the 40 stolen bases. Me too. The, um, yeah, I mean... Braves fans, it like, so it's so hard because for entertainment reasons, of course you want to see him do it. But also it's like every time he steals a base, I'm like, that's the franchise, man. That's the franchise <laughs> sliding headfirst into second base. There's a projectile flying at him. It's just like it, stealing bases is dangerous, you know. And um, so, yeah, I, uh, in some ways I would almost prefer that he doesn't attempt 40 steals, even though he's really good at it because it's just like you just want to – close your eyes every time you see him go because it's just like that's I mean that's the guy you know that's mm-hmm. the future of the sport and and uh if we can put him in situations where he's not likely to get injured that would bring me a little bit more peace of mind well I think one thing he can do is anytime he plays the Mets um he's too fast for any of our pitchers to get to the plate and then whoever is catching to throw him out Wilson Ramos isn't going to do that so yeah. yeah I think he can honestly get 40 steals alone against the Mets so I think there is a shot okay. on yeah. that front so um Bailey this was incredible Bailey the creator of Foolish Baseball Baseball Bits Baseball Content Creator the number zero number infinity podcast that you'll ever have the graces of letting uh bless your ears Bailey sincerely appreciate your time today man all right thank you Thank you so much for listening to this episode of For the Love of Sports with Bailey of Foolish Baseball. Bailey was a lot of fun, really cool, really glad and happy that we had the opportunity to chat. Please check the links in the show notes. We'll have all of his pages, obviously the first episode actually of the podcast, which I'm really excited to show you guys, his podcast, of course, as well as just some other links and stuff, uh, his his, uh, socials and all that stuff. So also, if you could please give us a five-star review on iTunes, that would be super, super, super helpful. And we really appreciate that. So thank you all so much. I really appreciate your time. It's the only thing we don't get more of, so thanks for giving me some of yours, and I hope you make it a wonderful day. Yes.